0: Welcome back to Takes by the Lake from Cleveland.com. I'm your host, Doug Maurice. We're talking more Browns and NFL draft stuff today. Sorry we missed you guys last week. We try to do this every Friday at Cleveland.com, and we might sprinkle in a few more as we lead up to the NFL Combine here. Great guest today. It's Evan Silva from Roto World. Follow him on Twitter at E-V-A-N, S-I-L-V-A. That's Evan Silva. Um, Great guest. Thoughts and opinions on the Browns, on their path um, to rebuilding this franchise still, on the front office of John Dorsey, on what the Browns did and didn't accomplish with Sashi Brown. Um, Great conversation. The guy's really passionate. And the thing that I really wanted to have him talk about was his thinking about the cocoon of the NFL, where lots of people in and around the league think the same way and uh, are often invested in keeping out people who think differently. So this is a a hefty conversation with Evan. Um, Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening. You can subscribe to this on Google Play and Apple Podcasts. We'll keep branching out and giving you guys more ways to subscribe. And also uh, make sure you're subscribed to our other Cleveland.com podcasts, all in separate feeds now. You want to subscribe to them separately. You may have subscribed just to this feed previously. If you were subscribed to this and you got everything here, now you got to go find us in different spots. There's the Wine and Gold podcast, Wine and Gold Talk. That's from Joe Varden and Chris Fedor on the Cavs. Lots of stuff happening there for them to talk about. We have the Cleveland Baseball Talk podcast, as we are now uh, at the beginning of spring training. That's Paul Hoynes and Joe Noga. And, of course, um, always interesting year-round, the Orange and Brown Talk podcast with Mary Kay Cabot and Dan Labe, And then the Buckeye Talk podcast on Ohio State football with me, Tim Bielek, and Bill Landis. Find them on wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Go subscribe separately to them. And then also cleveland.com slash podcasts. That's the landing page at cleveland.com for every podcast if you want to find us there. So strap in. We got a good hefty hour of Evan Silva. I really liked it. I think you guys are going to like it. Um, And we appreciate you guys listening here to Takes by the Lake from Cleveland.com. All right, we're joined on Takes by the Lake by Evan Silva. He's the senior football editor for Roto World. He knows his stuff on this, and and this is why I wanted to bring him on. I like him on Twitter as a follow. I heard Evan uh, on Roto Underworld podcast where he was just absolutely sort of breaking down the thinking around the Browns. He has a real understanding of, of a lot of teams in the NFL and can bring context to this because he studies all these teams on a regular basis, and he can tell you you know, where the Browns fell short last year and how they used their personnel and, and maybe guys they should have used more and that kind of thing. So anyway, um, Evan, thank you very much for taking time to join me. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for, for having me, and yeah, I mean, like, one of my, my
1: main responsibilities for Roto-World, obviously, is, like, fantasy football coverage, which people, some people may, I mean, people that play, fa- play fantasy intensely may understand, but most people don't play fantasy intensely, they just play against their family members and stuff but I mean we really try to appeal to like daily fantasy players who are worried about trying to predict what is going to happen in every single game and try to have an edge over their competition who maybe is not are not working as hard and um, you know so we are like obsessed with like playing time and we are obsessed with um, targets for, for mm-hmm. you know receivers and running backs we're obsessed with usage of, of running backs, wide receivers, tight ends, just all like really uh, you know detailed analysis of what coaches are doing in order to try to improve our chances of discovering what or, you know, predicting what's going to happen in the next game. And so when a team really sticks out with their player usage, like they are proactively not playing their best players, it sticks out like a sore thumb. Yeah, And, I mean, it, it <laughs> happens, you know, with certain players on certain teams, you know, and, and you'll, you'll hear complaints about that. But with the Browns, it happened with numerous players. Okay. And so that really enhanced – my level of, like, focus on the Browns, like, what the heck is going on here? Because they were making what I think were so many mistakes and essentially not playing their best players, and it just it really irks me, especially for a team that, when when it's a team that just gets trashed by mainstream media, like, you wouldn't even believe. And it's, like, low-hanging fruit, like, you know, I mean, they're – they're like the the Sacramento Kings, I guess, of the of the NFL, but it, but it's even worse than that. Yeah, and just anyone, you know, everyone, anyone can take a pot shot at the Browns. Like that's the easiest thing to do, yep. And they do it, and they do it over and over, and they do it every single week. And but what what I really was concerned with was like, why the heck are these things going so wrong? Uh,
0: and you know, the more that I looked at it, I, I thought it was coaching. Okay, so when we talked about doing this podcast, we have sort of talked about some of the things we might want to talk about. I'm going to ask you this right off the top, though, because I have been talking to myself about the idea of trying to remain open-minded about Hugh Jackson going into his third season. He's not going anywhere He's going to be the head coach of the Cleveland Browns on opening day. I obviously have been very, very harsh on Hugh. Um, With what I've asked him in press conferences, with what I've written about him, I think he's done a bad job and he's been bad for the Browns. But he's here. So I'm trying to think like, okay, maybe there are reasons that like they got all these new assistant coaches. They're going to have a different quarterback. All these draft picks, and salary cap. Maybe... I can be open-minded that Hugh can get this done. But now, Evan, I can feel you already getting me wound up about (laughs) Hugh Jackson. Should anybody be open-minded about Hugh Jackson entering this year? Or when you talk about the things you analyzed last year, in the way he coached this team, in the way he used and didn't use certain players, do you just shake your head about why this guy is still a head coach in the NFL.
1: So, by the way, I've seen your like back and forth with Bud <laughs> Shaw, who's kind of like an older, yeah. uh, older school like you know sports writer. And I mean, I, I love Bud Shaw; I've been reading him for years. But I love the the fresh kind of takes that you have in your back and forth with him, and they're they're great. They're great listens. You can see it on, uh, you know, you, you can watch watch you guys like arguing back and forth live. It's it's excellent. Yes, we like um, to argue. Yeah, right. And and it's like friendly argument. It's it's fun, but it's it, it's just great sports talk. Um, especially if you if you care about the Browns uh, with Hugh Jackson. So I always liked Hugh Jackson. I mean, I thought that he actually even kind of got a bum rap in in Oakland. Uh, okay. If you go back and look at uh, some of the things that he did uh, in Oakland, he was super super aggressive. He was too aggressive at times, but he got, like, career years out of a number of players. Uh, Ronald Curry, the old wide receiver slash uh, North Carolina point guard. Darren McFadden had his career best season under Darren, under Hugh Jackson in Oakland. Uh, in Cincinnati, I thought that he was, like, an innovative uh, offensive coordinator, and he went, when he went to the Browns, I thought that he was a good hire. I legitimately thought okay. it was a good hire. So I'm not going to sit here and pretend, like – you know, oh, I knew that this guy was an idiot or something like that. I don't think he's an idiot. I think that he is a good offensive mind, but he is really clearly um, been a, a, a deficiency of the Browns since he took over as head coach. And I think that it's getting worse.
0: Okay. Uh, Ooh. Yeah. Okay. Getting worse, huh? Why do you think it's getting worse?
1: Uh, I think that uh, ego and uh, power battles uh, have taken precedence for him over being a good coach, which I, th- which I think that, again, at his core, he is a good coach, uh, but he has been atrocious. And, I mean, hey, listen, I, I listened to, uh, you know, your-, your podcast with Aaron Schatz, and this team should have won three to five games this past year, Yep, and, and they didn't. And they went to overtime twice, and they lost both. And they lost a bunch of one score games. In week one, they lost to the Steelers by three points. Right. You know, and then and then they wound up getting their butts whooped by Landry Jones in week seventeen. <laughs>
0: uh, yeah, they, Ben. Ben was all there was no yeah. tangible improvement <laughs> from no. the Browns. No. If you look at it from that standpoint, the first thing that stands out to me is the. Egregious player usage. Okay. They couldn't
1: figure out how to get David Njoku on the field as a full time player. You look at OJ Howard in Tampa Bay, he was playing 70% of the snaps. You look at Evan Ingram for the Giants, he was like their number one receiver, you know, Um, and they could not figure out how to get David Njoku on the field as a full time player. He kept getting better as a run blocker uh, over the course of the season, but they, like, were totally averse to playing 12 personnel, uh, 12 personnel, of course, uh, two tight end formations. It's like they couldn't figure out how to add that into their offense, maybe because they didn't even have an offensive coordinator, but they would just, they just split time right down the middle with Seth, Seth, the valve, Seth, the valve, by the way, I think is a positive contributor, very good athlete, uh, smart player, you know, efficient in the passing game. He should be on the field. Why can these guys not play at the same time? Why right. can't step set the valve, line up at slot receiver, you put David Njoku in line where he should be used, he's a very similar prospect to Travis Kelsey uh, of the Chiefs, he can play in line, he's a good enough blocker to play in line. Is he going to have some ups and downs? Of course, he's a rookie tight end. I mean, you go back and look at the, the history of rookie tight ends, it's it's anemic, uh, but you know, he he was a guy that needed to take his lumps. They couldn't figure out how to get those guys on the field at the same time. I have no idea why they underutilized Duke Johnson so much. I mean, he was yep. one of the most efficient players in the NFL on a per-touch basis this past year. And then defensively, Larry Oganjovi you know, they needed, like, multiple injuries on their defensive line to get him really going. And he, he, by the way, is going to be a stud. He's a certified stud. He was a freak spark athlete uh, coming out of UNC Charlotte. He broke, like, every school record uh, for tackles for loss and sacks. Uh, and, you know, you could see his development as the season progressed. And I just, when you look at, like, the the, the talent and the productivity of players relative to their playing time, it was the the, 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 the team that screwed it up the most was the 2017 Browns. And they, they were a poorly coached team, Doug.
0: And and that is a thing, and again, I think that's why, Evan, guys like you are so so important in providing context, because if, if sitting here in Cleveland, you're watching the Browns every week, and you think, man, you know, they traded up to the back of the first round to get David Njoku. Um, he seems like a really athletic, talented guy. You know there's going to be some learning curve. Man, I, I wish he was on the field more, but I don't know. Maybe that's just what you do. With young tight ends. Maybe they're just being careful. Maybe they don't want to put too much on his plate. Maybe I'm maybe I'm, you know, trying to rush him and and they know what's best. But here you are, you're saying other teams were playing rookie tight ends. And to me, then, if you're going 0 16, you're why not go 0-16 getting David and Joku on the field more? He's not he couldn't have lost any more games for you with with any mistakes he might have made because he was young but you're saying that that it would not at all have been a stretch for the browns to play a guy like that more because other teams were playing guys like that far more
1: yeah and one thing that honestly bothered me and look you're a you know you're a plane dealer slash cleveland.com guy um, and so i would guess that you have kind of close relationships or you, you at least know, uh, the Browns beat writers and the, the Browns, they have a, a pretty good army of, of beat writers. I mean, you know, w- one thing that we really concern ourselves with at Roto world, because we're constantly like churning out blurbs from every beat writer in the nation, every beat writer that we think is, is solid. And I mean, you got, you guys have a bunch there, a bunch at the, the Akron, uh, Nate Ulrich is really yep. good at the, the Akron Beacon Journal. Um, you know, they're they're the Browns have like some smart guys, some smart guys and gals uh, on their um, on on their like a, as their beat writers. I mean, they're they're certainly not toward the bottom. They're, they they I would say that probably they're they're toward the top.
0: Yeah. However, after each weekly press conference, I never
1: understood why is Hugh Jackson not being asked critical questions? Why is he being asked every week? Who's going to be the backup quarterback this week, Cody Kessler or Kevin Hogan? I mean, after he would be asked that question, and I'm just you know watching it on on Twitter. He would be asked that question every single week, and then you know every Browns beat writer would would tweet out who the expected backup quarterback would be for that week, and I'd be like, what the this this has no relevance. Right. Also, no other beat writers are, are asking their um, you know their head coach who the backup quarterback is going to be that particular week. And yeah. that was one of the biggest things every single week for the Browns beat writers. I just thought that was odd. I also think that hindsight draft revisionism analysis is
0: just bad analysis. Yeah, And that was a, a theme, a recurring theme of the
1: Browns coverage, the Browns team coverage in 2017 we can go back in anything in any draft and be like oh every everybody should be fired Grady Jarrett was a fourth round pick right oh Tom Brady was a sixth round pick how are we not firing everyone Albert Pujols in the in in, in baseball he was a 19th (laughs) round pick what were all these idiots thinking like that's really easy to do and it's not helpful to anyone it's not helpful to anyone
0: yeah yeah i agree and and that was a recurring theme of the browns coverage in
1: 2017 and that really really bothered me you know talking about Winston watson every single week and i I hope that we we get to talk about them a little bit more because i have really strong feelings about the way that the browns approach those guys um but talking about them every week is not going to help everyone and ultimately like jimmy haslam Clearly, the guy has no idea, idea what he's doing. So he is reading, you know, Cleveland papers, and he's like, "Oh, these these people have the these, these people have the answer," you
0: know.
1: And <laughs> yeah, that, that's wrong, man. That that's that's wrong. I, I, it's, it's outcome biased, uh, revisionist analysis, and it's worthless.
0: I, I do think as as and we're going to get you know um at analyzing sort of what's what's going forward with the browns but i do think it's it's worth talking about um because it at in the moment i did think i always said that sashi brown was always criticized for what for the players he did not draft that was the main criticism of Sashi Brown was that he did not draft Carson Wentz when he could have. He did not draft Deshaun Watson when he could have. Those were obviously the main two. Whereas in the past, there were a lot of problems with the Browns where the Browns did draft Justin Gilbert and that blew up in their face. They did draft Johnny Manziel. They did draft Brandon Whedon and Trent Richardson. And I do feel like in the end, a lot of the discussion was about guys who weren't on the Browns that could have been, rather than saying, well, what about the guys they did draft? Are they playing well? Are they a foundation for the future? Were they good picks? And then you end up talking much more about Carson Wentz and Deshaun Watson than you do about David Njoku and Larry Ogunjobi, who were good, high-round picks by this front office that's no longer here. Um, But I think two things happen. I think the quarterback situation has been so dire um, since Tim Couch, that people get obsessed with it, and then you end up talking about who's not here at quarterback rather than who is here at defensive tackle, for instance. And the march toward 0 and 16, people got very fixated on how are they going to win? How are they going to win? How are they going to win a game? When to me, and I think to a lot of other people, I don't know what the difference is between two wins and zero wins. You're bad you're trying to get better for the future and so let's talk about young players on the team and how they're being used and how they're progressing and that kind of thing and not be obsessed with what could they possibly do to get one win next week but i i guess i understand i mean you know this is a losing this has been a losing football franchise for a long time and i think people kind of fell into that obsession is that is that what you kind of saw from your view um
1: you know, I'm not in Cleveland, you yeah. know, like you are, and I'm not, you know, I'm not in Ohio. I do have uh, one buddy who, who writes for us. Uh, he writes at Roto World. His name is Rich Rebar. He's super smart. You should have him on your podcast, by the way. I will give you his, uh, his contact nice. information. Uh, after this, he's so smart, man, and he's um, he's definitely a data guy, and he talks, and I've had conversations, like per- personal conversation with, with him about, like, how does it, what is it like just being in Cleveland, and he'll be like, I mean, at first, like, everybody wanted Sashi out, and then, like, some of his friends, I mean, he's like a 35-year-old guy, some of his friends were, well, a couple of his friends are still, like, totally anti-Sashi, think that, you know, John
0: Dorsey is, like, the God's gift, and, yeah. you know, it, it, I don't know. It, it's
1: it's an interesting dynamic that I, I can't describe nearly as well as he possibly could. ultimately, Sashi Brown, you know, he was the Browns' EVP, the executive vice president. He approached the draft differently than most teams. He, he thought outside the box. He made the Brock Osweiler trade, and he realized that he had a roster to build from the ground up when he got the Browns' job. And he also took a humble approach to his job, because he realized that he didn't have the NFL draft
0: figured out. The NFL draft is a crapshoot. I mean, I've been doing this for almost over a decade,
1: and I know that, look, we like to pretend that some teams are better at drafting than others, and it's true that some teams do have short-term hot runs in the draft. But when you look at it from a macro level, the NFL draft truly is a crapshoot. No one is really better at it than anyone else when you expand the sample size. The Seahawks had a hot run. It fizzled out. The Packers had a hot run. They fizzled. The Giants had a hot run. They fizzled. The Patriots have been great for a long time, but it's not because they're better at drafting than, than anyone else. If you go back and look at their drafts, they're about as successful as anyone else's, maybe even worse. Yeah, I mean, they're like yeah. a league average or worse drafting team. And so Sashi Brown and Paul DiPodesta and Andrew Berry's approach was to give themselves as many shots as possible in the draft. But because they did not have win-loss success inside the first two years, they were disposed of and made to look like
0: idiots on their way out by the Cocoon. Oh, uh, I can't wait horses. to get to the Cocoon. That's coming.
1: Or, or at least Sashi was made to look like an idiot and so the Cocoon basically ended up winning that battle.
0: Alright, this, when I heard you on this other podcast, Evan, that was the moment, and again, I followed you on Twitter, I like your stuff, but that was the moment when I said, I have got to have this guy on takes by the lake you're on this roto underworld podcast and you were talking what was the name of the of that episode of the podcast again it had a great name
1: it's called uh hugh jackson uh full colon uh schematic atrocities
0: (laughs) schematic atrocities is a great band name if if you and i if we ever get a band of uh of football writers together, a, a punk band or something. We'll name it Schema- Hugh Jackson's Schematic Atrocities. Um, the Cocoon.
1: I would only join the band if Sashi Brown was on the payroll. <laughs>
0: he's, he's on the drums. He's back to be playing the tambourine, joining in. Um, the Cocoon. The NFL Cocoon. I will admit that... I very much liked the idea of the Browns doing something different. I liked taking the risk with Sashi Brown. I liked big picture thinking. I liked sacrificing the present in the name of the future because so many other traditional football things and traditional football people had not worked. They now have certainly traditional football people all over the place, and traditional football people who have had some levels of success in the NFL. It's been a little bit hard for me to get as enthused about that because now the Browns, to me, are, again, just like everybody else. They're set up in a lot of ways to maybe have success, but, they, but they're but they not doing it differently anymore. And, again, that's something I have to be open-minded about. Obviously, lots of people wanted football guys. I was fine with the different thinking. But you're... Outlook on the NFL cocoon and the groupthink and the way everybody in that world, the football guys in the NFL, sort of have each other's back and think alike fascinated me. I don't know what my question is, Evan, but take me into your cocoon theory of the NFL and how it relates to the Browns. Yeah, so
1: I think that cocoon thinking is a concept that really spans business industries. It's not just in the NFL. And the thinking behind it is that it aims to limit thinking and to stamp out new ideas because the people inside the cocoon are intent on making it seem like they and the other people inside the cocoon have everything figured out. And the people who are outside of the cocoon are clueless. And so when someone infiltrates the cocoon who is not seen as a member of the cocoon, the mission of those inside the cocoon is to get that person out and not only get them out, but make them look like an idiot on the way out. And that happened with Sashi Brown. And it also more prominently uh, happened with Chip Kelly. And I mean, look, the Eagles screwed up by giving this innovative coach way too much front office power. And that was the downfall. Of Chip Kelly Uh, but when Chip Kelly failed after having early success not only was he quickly disposed of but he was made to look like an idiot on his way out and that was despite the fact that Chip Kelly added so much to the game he was the first guy out here running the run pass options the RPOs uh, which like took mainstream media by storm uh, leading up to the Super Bowl he was the first guy out here pushing the pace aggressively and playing up-tempo and playing no-huddle. And those concepts have been stolen by the rest of the coaches in the league and used by some of the best teams in the league with resounding success. Uh, so Sashi Brown is not the only victim of the the cocoon thinking. The, the cocoon really just strives to um, keep everybody safe and employed inside the league. But it's going to really start to change. The Eagles were very... Uh, public with their use of analytics, uh, particularly in the two weeks leading up to the Super Bowl. Uh, they weren't afraid to go talk about it, to, to talk about this competitive edge that they had acquired from just, you know, being willing to think outside the box a little bit. Doug Peterson was frowned on as a uh, coaching hire initially. I mean, he mm-hmm. never called plays for the Chiefs. Um, you know, he wasn't particularly notable. He looked like a hire that was just like, Oh, we're gonna we're gonna take this guy from from Andy Reed's tree where because it was a reaction after the Chip Kelly right thing that they were like, Oh, we're we're just we're gonna go back to Andy Reid and we're gonna try to find an Andy Reed type of guy. Um, and so, you know, that was the it actually seemed like a cocoon hire at the time. Like, you know, we're, we're just, we're going to stay inside of this box. Uh, But he thought outside the box, you know, and he was willing to go for it on fourth down, not just selectively. Like he would, any, so the, the thing that really differentiated Doug Peterson was the fact that he had an analytics guy in his ear, Mm -hmm. you know, every coach wears a headset and Doug Peterson was not so – I have so much to say on this. But,
0: <laughs> I love it. Um, I love it. <laughs> all
1: right. All right. So a lot of like play callers in the NFL – so say it's first down and 10. It's, it's, it's always first down and 10, pretty much always. So on first and 10, they call a pass, and the pass is incomplete. So now they're, now they're down to second and 10. They know that on third and 10, they're probably going to call a pass play – because it's probably, you know, it, if they if they get to third and ten, they're probably going to call a pass play. So they call a run play on second and ten yep that just gets them a couple yards. And at least at the end of the day, they don't have to finish the series feeling like they were an idiot for calling three straight pass plays. Okay. That's how a lot of play callers think.
0: See it like all the call, time. Yep.
1: Yeah. What? will make me not look like an idiot here doug peterson was like screw that doug peterson was like from it doesn't matter what happened on the previous play i want to know what is my team's success rate when when i call a specific play on second and seven and does it increase our win probability because uh we want to be making optimal decisions from down to down. Ultimately, of course, it's Doug Peterson's decision. He's a football guy. He played in the NFL. You know, he was a backup. He shared time with Donovan Donovan Minab. He learned from Andy Reid, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But he wants to make optimal play calls. He's not worried about what happened on first and 10. He's like, all right, you know, analytics guy, what do you got for me? What, you know, what, what are some good plays that we can use? What's our success rate when we use those plays? And will it increase our win probability? And so he, you know, on on third and you know nine, he's not worried about what happened on second on second down. Right, he's worried about making the optimal play call in that specific situation.
0: Right, yeah, it's 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 funny. You look at. Uh... The Eagles and obviously their use of analytics has has gotten a lot of attention since the Super Bowl win. They have talked they talked a lot about sort of building up their offensive line and building up their defensive line, which should sound very familiar to Browns fans. Um, they had a guy in Howie Roseman who's who's in a lot of ways a non traditional football guy who was making decisions who kind of was there got shoved aside when Chip Kelly uh, was hired and then came back. Um, and then helped build the, uh, a Super Bowl roster. Um, there's a lot of things that the Eagles did well that, uh, to me, sound similar to what the Browns were trying to do. The Browns just hadn't equated that to wins yet. But a lot of the ideas were were at least slightly in the same ballpark to me. Do you know what I'm saying? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And but there's nothing that
1: the that the cocoon can do about this because this team just won the Super Bowl, and you you can't really you know, it's just it, it must really hurt the the members of the cocoon. <laughs> what what really is, is the worst aspect though of the cocoon are the cocoon keepers. Yeah, and the the cocoon keepers. So the cocoon keepers typically think that people inside the NFL the the members of the cocoon they have everything figured out and the cocoon keepers try to protect those people or it could just be as simple as say a football writer gets to meet john dorsey at the senior bowl and john dorsey was nice nice to that football writer and so that football writer is always going to say positive things about john dorsey regardless of what his actual track record is and regardless of the fact that he just got fired by one of the NFL's most respected organizations in in the Kansas City Chiefs. And right. the cocoon keeper is going to pound the table that the Browns passed on Carson Wentz and Deshaun Watson when drafting Carson Wentz or Deshaun Watson was not only suitable to the it was not suitable to the Browns organizational approach but it was never even under consideration. The Browns had a roster to build when Sashi Brown inherited this team. They actually didn't even pass on Wentz or Watson. They traded down because they were trying to build a roster. They were no way equipped to handle the development of Carson Wentz. I mean, Carson Wentz played a Division I double-A. He uh, he missed time there due to injuries. Uh, He had significant mechanical problems that he had to figure out in Philadelphia, and he struggled for most of his rookie year. He was very good in the first three games, uh, but he struggled from weeks four through 17, and he was very lucky to be surrounded by three quarterback gurus and Doug Peterson, who obviously played quarterback in the NFL, John DiFilippo, yep. uh, who used to be in Cleveland, unfortunately, uh, and Frank Reich, who, of course, also played uh, quarterback in the NFL. And if Carson Wentz had been drafted by the Browns, he would have been playing on a team that didn't even have an offensive coordinator last year. And Deshaun Watson has now torn his ACL twice since 2014. And he is a dual threat quarterback. A huge part of his game is running and eluding pressure. And now he's torn both of his ACLs. And Deshaun Watson, by the way, struggled badly last year in the preseason and initially when he was a starter. So if he would have struggled like that under Hugh Jackson, Throwing to Ricardo Lewis and Richard Higgins, my guess, based on how Hugh Jackson operated in 2017, is that Deshaun Watson would have been benched yep. like Deshaun Kaiser was. Yep. But the me- the members of the cocoon and the cocoon keepers, they try to drill it into our heads that the Browns passed on these guys, even though drafting these guys was never even a consideration, and there was no way that Sashi Brown was going to draft either of those guys, and he never should have. And yet we are constantly told that Sashi Brown a mistake by passing on Carson Wentz and Deshaun Watson but passing on Carson Wentz and Deshaun Watson was actually the right move and yet we are told the complete opposite of the truth and I have a big problem with that we're we're being flat out lied to
0: god you're this is you're getting me fired up man I'm (laughs) I love it I you're making some really good points listen there's a couple other things I want to I want to cover with you Evan Do you think – and I think this is – I want to get into this more at some point. I sort of have a belief. I mean it seems like everybody agrees. Not seems like. Everybody does. Everybody agrees that the Browns are in great shape this offseason in terms of what they can do. With their draft picks, everybody knows that. With all the salary cap room they have, everybody knows that. They are in that spot because of what happened the previous two years with Sashi Brown. Do you – I kind of have a belief – that it would have taken somebody outside the cocoon, that it would have taken a non football guy to take that risk to set the browns up this way, because I don't know that anybody in the cocoon could have stomached the past two years to put the browns in a position that they're in now that everybody agrees is a great position do you think do you think there's some truth to that that it had to be somebody? who thought a little bit differently who would take the risk to set the browns up like this yeah
1: i think it's a good question because i think that it leads to a few different thoughts and the first is that i think it is conceivable right now that the sashi the, the sashi brown type comes in as the analytics guy he sacrifices some short-term wins and losses. He wins every trade that he partakes in, including the A.J. McCarron trade, by the way, which would have been a friggin' disaster, giving he up did. a two and a three for eight games of A.J. McCarron, who then was going to become a free agent, as today we found out he's going to be an unrestricted free agent. Right. Uh, but Sashi Brown won every trade that he uh, took part in, and he was brilliant in terms of cap management. Didn't make a single... Uh, Cap management error. I mean, even down to, like, he was like a frugal guy when it came to the cap. I mean, he uh, got rid of Joe Hayden,
0: right? And Which I was signed fine Jason with. Jason
1: McCourty, and Jason McCordy was way better than Joe Hayden. Yep. By the way, and uh, was so much cheaper and better for the cap. I mean, Sashi Brown was impeccable with ca- with cap management. Yeah. And although. Sashi Brown was great in all these aspects. I mean, maybe his football acumen was not as high as like John Dorsey. So maybe when Sashi Brown takes the fall as the guy who was able to compile assets and give the organization full financial flexibility, maybe he's not the perfect guy to make the pick on every personnel decision going forward. Maybe Dorsey comes in and he's the guy for that job. And I'm not sure that I buy that theory, but I do think it's on the table. I mean, I just really think that John Dorsey can't possibly mess this up. As for whether a quote unquote football guy could do all that, I would say yes, theoretically he can, but he probably never actually would. And
0: yeah, like thinking thinking inside the box is the best way to stay in tight with the cocoon.
1: Guys with awful track records They get hired without fail every year. How the heck did Brian Schottenheimer get an offensive coordinator job in the NFL? How is Norb Turner the offensive coordinator for Cam Newton now? How did the Cardinals special teams coach, whose special teams were bottom five each of the last five years, (laughs) get a new special teams coach job with
0: the Browns? These are the, the the cocoon coaching moves. Yep. Okay, so now so now clearly the Browns are back in the cocoon. Hugh Jackson's definitely a cocoon guy. John Dorsey, Elliot Wolf, Alonzo Highsmith, Scott McLuhan in this front office. They are back they are back in the world that every other team inhabits. What is your degree of faith? You said, you know, you think John Dorsey probably won't screw this up. Should people? Kasashi's gone, right? I mean, at some point, you know, he he left an imprint here and this offseason has his fingers all over it of of the position they're in. But he's not here. John Dorsey and and the guys he's hired are here. Should Browns fans believe that they can do some things to get this franchise on the right track? They're in the mix. They're football guys. All the people who wanted football guys, they got them. What is your level of faith that they're going to do this and do this well? Um,
1: I mean, I think we can go through every prominent figure and kind of pick them apart in the Browns front office. John Dorsey got fired less than a year ago by the Chiefs for bad cap management. Basically, he wasn't good at his job. Uh, Elliot Wolf has a big name because his dad was the Hall of Fame GM of the Packers. We really have no idea what Elliot Wolf was doing in the Packers front office other than being some sort of legacy. So we don't know really what his skill set is or what he brings to the t- table. We do know he li- he's likely benefited from nepotism and we do know that when the Packers went searching for a new GM to replace Ted Thompson, they did not pick Elliot Wolf. They did not they pick could. him. Nope. Right uh alonzo highsmith seems like a good addition he has a reputation for finding late round or undrafted gems like donald driver uh tremont williams sam shields although those three players over the that's three players over the course of like a 15 year span so what does that really mean uh scott McLuhan, i've always liked him Uh, i think that as he kind of became more of like a, a, a character on Twitter. I was like, I mean, he liked like Christian Hackenberg, you know, he's, he's obviously not perfect and we shouldn't expect anyone to be perfect. Uh, I mean, I, I generally like him. I think that it's probably been overblown how much of a say he's going to have in the Browns. He runs a scouting consultant firm. Right. Uh, and so it's possible that the Browns just became, you know, subscribed to his, his NFL Consultant firm, and that's really what it sounds like to me. What has occurred? I don't think he's like a member of the Browns front office. I, ultimately, I think that this front office is just is just so set up for success by the groundwork that Sashi Brown and Paul DePodesta and Andrew, Andrew Barry laid out that it would be difficult to fail. They'd have to be really bad to mess this up. Because what Sashi did was build up the offensive and the defensive lines, gift wrap not only one but two draft picks. In the top four picks of a draft that is widely considered one of the best quarterback drafts in memory. I mean, we may see five quarterbacks taken in the first round. Yep. And Sashi left the Browns with the lowest free agency liability in the league, meaning they have almost have almost no free agents. Isaiah Crowell is the only technically important free agent. So John Dorsey struggled with contracts in the cap in Kansas City, and that's why he got fired. Well in Cleveland John Dorsey is not going to have to make difficult contract decisions, at least in year one. So that kind of hides what we know was John Dorsey's biggest flaw in Kansas City. So I do expect the Browns new front office to succeed. I think they will succeed. And I think that the turnaround could be quick. They have seven picks in the top 100. They have two picks in the top four. The Browns have enough sheer draft capital that they could legitimately use two top five picks on quarterbacks and lower their probability of quote-unquote missing. They have so much cap space and draft capital that they could legit sign Kirk Cousins and use a top four pick on a quarterback. And I'm not saying that that's what they're going to do. I'm not saying that that's the best thing for them to do. I'm just saying that the flexibility that the previous regime left behind, it's not something that we've seen in the NFL before. And that's probably the driving force For why John Dorsey took this job and why he was able to lure Alonzo Highsmith and Elliot Wolf along with him. Yep.
0: All right. So I I want to get your take on sort of the path that you might suggest here. And one thing that I've been trying to do in this podcast over time, I'm going to try to have different people on. We've had some. I had a a guy on Joe Marino who really liked Josh Rosen, for instance. And I'm trying to have. uh, We know Pete Smith is a big Baker Mayfield guy. Have different people who really like a certain quarterback because I'm trying to have Browns... My my advice to Browns fans is don't fall in love with one quarterback in this draft to the extent that if they don't take your guy, you're mad. Because obviously there's a difference of opinion. There, like you said, there are multiple options at quarterback at the top of this draft. There are multiple veterans available out there. So... Be open-minded, is my advice to Browns fans, because I do think there's more than one way for this to go well. Do you agree with that, or or to you, is there a clear path that would be the best use of both the salary cap room and the draft capital in terms of, would you, for instance, sign Kirk Cousins, draft two guys in the top four who aren't quarterbacks, target maybe a cornerback and a receiver in free agency. And that's the absolute best path for them to turn this around. Or are there a lot of ways that they could go? How do you sort of view their options because they do have so much available capital to acquire new talent?
1: Yeah, they have an incredible amount of flexibility. Again, they don't have to make any difficult free agent decisions and, um, Their roster, you know, anyone that's important is signed long-term. Most of them are cheap. Uh, They have a ton of talent on the defensive line in particular. Uh, They have good talent, particularly if if Joe Thomas comes back. I mean, they can can just bring back their entire O-line, I think, and and feel pretty good about it. Uh, And those are – it's funny because those are the positions that – "Quote unquote football guys would would really focus on offensive yep. and defensive line, and that's actually exactly what Sashi Brown friggin' focused on. Yep, you, you know, so it's it, it's funny, like, uh, but I, I I like that you mentioned uh, Pete Smith and, and Joe Marino. I love those guys. Joe Marino, by the way, he was the best mock drafter in the nation last year. Really? The Huddle Report uh, looks at mock draft accuracy, and Joe Marino crushed it. Uh, and he's, he's a great guest. I haven't listened to your podcast with him yet. I need to. Uh, and then Pete Smith, you know, he's, he's, he's awesome. Um,
0: he's all over Baker, know. baby. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, I actually
1: think, and I, I would probably be different. I would probably differ with most people, uh, in this respect, but with all the cap space that they have, they have $110 million. They can, uh, front load a contract for Kirk Cousins and you can secure a top I mean we can be conservative and just call him a top 15 quarterback I mean he's worn the franchise tag like the last two years for the Redskins you know he's better than a top 15 quarterback he's better than a top half quarterback but I think and he's played in the cold hey he played at Michigan State Um, you know obviously Big Ten football I think that he would be the best option for the Browns at quarter at quarterback. and I know people are gonna hate this after the Sashi Brown years, but I think that they should trade down with uh, one of those top four picks because you can end up getting a bounty yep. because the the quarterback starvation in this league is <coughs> rampant. And you know what we have seen what teams have gotten for RG3, what teams have gotten for uh, Jared Goff and and Carson Wentz. And I don't think that, and I I think that the Browns need to continue to just take shots and be humble about the draft and not pretend that they have everything figured out and not take a running back as much as I love Saquon Barkley, which by the way, I love Saquon Barkley. I don't think that they should take a running back in the top four. Um, I think that they should, they should trade down. And I, I think that they could even trade down with both of those those uh, top four picks if they sign Kirk Cousins. I know that people are not going to want to not going to want to hear that because they want. I think this team to like add premium talent, and I, I do get that. I think that Bradley Chubb and Minka Fitzpatrick should both be squarely in play uh, with uh, at least one of those top five picks. But you know, with the the bounty that NFL teams are willing to uh, give up to secure what they believe is a franchise quarterback. Uh, you can really, really uh, end up turning a profit uh, with your current assets. I, I don't know what what do you do you have a, a certain uh, path that you believe they should take?
0: Yeah, I, I mean I, I, I'm trying to be open minded I, I do sort of uh, subscribe to the theory of you've waited um, two decades almost. This franchise, I did an analysis a couple of years ago of, of you know, two-thirds of, of, of the teams in the league, I, I would guess, in the past uh, two decades have taken a quarterback in the draft in the top ten, and the ones who haven't are the ones who are set, like the Patriots, um, and the Browns haven't. They haven't taken a quarterback in the top ten since Tim Couch. And they failed with all these guys at the back of the first round that you take a flyer on because they fell. We all know those names Brady Quinn, Johnny Manziel, Brandon Whedon, uh, Colt McCoy in the third round, everybody else, Uh, Deshaun Kaiser in the second round. And in the end, you end up sort of, you know, wasting a lot of picks. So I do, I think my instinct is to subscribe to the theory of this is your chance, identify your draft quarterback and take him. And take the guy that you think can be your franchise quarterback. You get the rookie deal. You're not paying $30 million right away for a guy. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I would, be, I, I would be open to trading down from number four in a world where I think you could uh, hold that number four pick for a ransom for a team wanting to come up and get a quarterback. I do believe that would make a lot of sense. And I think Sashi Brown, if he were around had a belief that he could trade down in perpetuity and create a situation where the Cleveland Browns, every year, have two first-round picks. And I absolutely think that is something that he had in mind. He believed that as an edge that they could have season after season. And I know a lot of people were frustrated when they traded down and did not take Deshaun Watson last year. They turned the number 12 pick in a draft into the fourth pick and the 25th pick. So if someone ever offered you a trade and said, hey, we'll give you 4 and 25 for 12, you run to the bank. It's ludicrous. You know, there, there,
1: there are 32 teams in the NFL. Do you know how many teams would, would take that?
0: 32. Correct. A thousand out of 32. So it's it's a, it's strange to me. And again, just getting back to the Carson Wentz, Deshaun Watson discussion real quick. You, you brought this up. A lot of people hold them accountable for not taking Wentz or Deshaun Watson when you only could have taken one. Because you created the opportunity to have a shot at Deshaun Watson at 12 because you traded down from two the year before with Carson Wentz. So people... Like the results, but they never want to to do the thing that creates the results. They get mad at the original move and then they love the results without really understanding how they got there. So it's, I would it's a
1: classic like uh process versus results way to evaluate decision making. These are all decision decisions that sashi brown or hugh jackson you know would, would have to make you know hey am i going to uh try to figure out a way to get david and joe and set the valve on the field together or am i just going to be lazy right and you know split their playing time right down the middle am i going to uh you know try to take a shot
0: on this division one double
1: quarterback with flawed mechanics uh, or am I going to trade down and try to build our roster, which we have no talent? You know, the, the talent that we have right now is, like, overpriced, old, and we need to get rid of those guys, you know, and we need to rebuild this team. And we, we, we have three years, right? This is what the owners told us. Right. We have three years, and, you know, it's just it, – it's all about, like, process over results. And I know that the, the mainstream way to evaluate these things is just purely through results – uh, and it, that's really unfair to the decision makers because the good decision makers make good process decisions. Sometimes they don't work out. I mean, you know, the the Patriots they had to make they felt they had to make a decision uh, later in the season to to get rid of Jimmy Garoppolo, and that's going to end up looking like a bad results based decision. Uh, so even the, the the you know a team that has been uh, a, you know, the best team in the NFL for like 20 years, they can even make mistakes. Right? Right. You know, they cut Coney Ely. Coney Ealy uh, actually ended, wound up having a decent season for the Jets. You know, they they don't get everything right. Again, look at their draft record. It's not terribly impressive by any means. It's just a, it's a classic like process versus results uh, conundrum. And I firmly believe, I know that, that sashi brown had an excellent process he didn't get everything right he didn't get every draft pick right they had a lot of draft picks i think they got a lot of good players that are probably underrated by the the general football public um, but I, I think that their process their process was spot on and i think that that's one of the things that you know the, the assets that they left behind was one of the main things that appealed to john dorsey that you know, having the ability to just be a GM again after getting fired uh, so recently, that's rare. You don't see very many GMs get the chance twice. But, you know, for John Dorsey, those positives outweigh the negative of having to work for Jimmy Haslam.
0: Right. Evan, I want to ask you one Kirk Cousins question before I let you go. Um, but I do think I want to talk about process. I love process. I love, I'm always interested, I'm so interested in process. That I would rather watch, like a documentary about how a movie gets made, than watch the movie. You know what I mean? Like I'd love how things happen more than the end result. And so that also fascinated me with Sashi Brown. And for instance, that when they chose um, to not re-sign Terrell Pryor, and Terrell Pryor went to the Washington Redskins. And a lot of Browns fans were very upset at that decision in the moment. That, to me, was an absolute process decision that Sashi Brown believed. This is a receiver of this skill set with these stats. This is our situation. And we believe he is worth this amount of money. And even though we could pay him more, we believe this is what he's worth. And if he's not willing to take this then we're going to pass. And over the long haul, if we stick to that process, if we stick to that thinking time and time and time again, when we have player personnel decisions, in the long run, we will win. And so you have to be willing to stick to your principles and stick to your process. And in the moment, a lot of people were very upset that Terrell Pryor left. Terrell Pryor went to Washington and did nothing. But people didn't really talk about that. They were angry in the moment. You had cap space. Why wouldn't you sign this guy? But to me, that was all about process. And I think over a 10-year period, that process would have won out in the NFL because they would have stuck to their guns on things. But in the moment, sometimes you lose one here or there. The process of trading down from number two and not taking Carson Wentz, in the end, that process is going to make your team better. In the moment, the guy you could have picked looks like the NFL MVP, and you don't have a quarterback, and you get fired for it. But over a 10-year period, that process would have made this franchise better.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it's it's funny. like So Sachi Brown obviously ends up getting fired. You, you look at their free agent decisions in – uh, the 2017 offseason they had four big investments uh, kevin zeitler hit yep uh, jc tredder i think mostly hit he was a top 15 center uh, at pro football focus you know i don't pretend to be like some big time offensive line wizard but you know he they their uh, at football outsiders too uh, their uh, adjusted line yards for run blocking uh, was top 14 in the nfl not elite necessarily, but certainly functional enough. And uh, Isaiah Crowell, over his last uh, 11 games, averaged 4.6 yards per carry, really strong. Uh, Jason McCourty was a resounding hit. I know that he wasn't great in the last, like, two or three games, uh, but he... For two years and six million dollars, I mean, getting a guy who shut down AJ Green twice.
0: Yep. uh, And they would use him against number one receivers. He was the replacement
1: for Joe Hayden. Joe Hayden wasn't chasing number one receivers uh, with the Steelers this year. He was. uh, He was playing on one side. He was playing zone, uh, and he got hurt. And I mean, he was he was fine, you know, but. Jason McCordy was a guy who chased number one receivers in man coverage, and those guys are difficult to find, particularly on friggin' two-year, $6 million deals. And now they have him under contract for 2018 at a, another cheap salary. Uh, so that's three hits. And then Kenny Britt, of course, was the miss. Yes, but they right. they went 75% on their three-agent investments. A guy like Ryan Pace in Chicago, where, where I'm where I live, Look at his free agent investments in 2017. Mike Glennon with Marcus Wheaton with Quinton Demps with um, they also uh, Marcus Cooper with. I mean, they got like everything wrong. Yep. And Ryan Pace, guess what? Guess what happens to him? Football guy extension extended through 2022. Yep. Sashi Brown fired or protecting his team from a coach who tried to backdoor a trade for A.J. McCarron for eight eight games of A.J. McCarron wanting to give up a second- and third-round pick. Now A.J. McCarron's a free agent. The Browns could conceivably sign A.J. McCarron. Hopefully they don't. But they could sign him and essentially have saved themselves a second- and third-round pick
0: from doing it. And I do. I know for a fact that um, Sashi Brown v- viewed the free agency just the way you said it. He know he knew he wasn't four for four. Kenny Britt was a miss. But I, but I I think he would have evaluated it as as you know two and a half, two and three quarters, maybe three. You know he knew Treader was was good, not great, and he knew they hit on McCourty and Zeitler, and um, you know. But but a lot of people wanted to talk about letting Joe Hayden go, uh, letting Terrell Pryor go, and Kenny Britt stinking, and you didn't hear as much about the other stuff. I want to talk about Kirk Cousins before we let you go, Evan. Um, I, the, my issue with Kirk Cousins, I know they have the cap space to do it. I, I want the Browns to get, and maybe this is naive and maybe this is not, um, maybe this is not, maybe I'm doing cocoon thinking right now by thinking this. I want the Browns to get their Super Bowl quarterback this offseason. I want them to get the quarterback they can win a championship with. I think when you have the first pick, the fourth pick, when you have places like the defensive line and the offensive line, when you're in pretty good shape, when you can focus on the quarterback position like this, when you have cap space like this, that is my threshold. I know there's no guarantees, but I want them to draft a quarterback at number one that they say, We can win a Super Bowl with this guy. And my question is, is Kirk Cousins that kind of quarterback? I know he would be better than anybody they've had here for a very, very long time. And that means something. Do you think Kirk Cousins would reach that threshold that I'm talking about? Or is that threshold that I'm throwing around a silly idea? Because if you build up a good roster and have talent around that quarterback, a lot of guys could be a Super Bowl quarterback. Nick Foles was a Super Bowl quarterback this year because the Eagles had a lot of other things working there. Can Kirk Cousins be a Super Bowl quarterback, or is that discussion the wrong discussion for me to be talking about? Yeah,
1: it's, it's an interesting conversation. I mean, obviously Nick like, like you said, Nick Foles was a uh, the Super Bowl an <laughs> MVP, which is yep. still incredible to me. I mean his his game against Minnesota, I could not believe what I was seeing. When I was watching, <laughs> yeah. um, and then he played just like that again uh, against the Patriots. Uh, but doing it against the like Vikings defense was 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 stunning. Um, so he just played above his head, I think. But I mean, he obviously deserves every ounce of credit that that he has gotten, and maybe even more. Um, Case Keenum was almost a Super Bowl quarterback. Blake Bortles was almost a Super Bowl Super Bowl yep. quarterback. I think that Kirk Cousins is better than Nick Foles, better than Blake Bortles, better than Case Keenum. Uh, I think that he is a top top fifteen quarterback. Again, to say conservatively, uh, and. So I think your decision is, uh, you know, if you're just looking for upside, does Sam Darnold have that much more upside that he's that big, you know, of an upgrade over replacement? Let's let's consider Kirk Cousins' replacement level, even though he's better than that. Is Sam Darnold, does he have the potential to become that much better than Kirk Cousins? And I don't know. I don't, again, I don't pretend to be like some great quarterback evaluator, uh, you know, I'm not like a some sort of great scout, uh, you know. Quarter evaluate quarterback evaluation has always been a weakness of mine, and I think it's a weakness of the NFL. Before the season, one of the things that I did, I looked back at uh, the last decade of first round picks uh, on. That were used on quarterbacks, yeah. The hit rate was thirty-eight point five percent, and that was when I was uh, I was considering Jay Cutler and Sam Bradford both hits, yep. Which some people would not, uh, but I mean, they wound up being long-term starters in the NFL. But the hit rate on first-round quarterbacks was thirty-eight point five percent over the previous decade, right? So, you know, I, I I'm not sure. You know, I think that Kirk Cousins is a sure thing. I don't think he's going to be a negative on your team, and I think he has a chance to be a positive if you put the right players around him. And then, you know, if you really like John Dorsey said, you know, if, if you don't believe in the players that were left on the roster, uh, you know, what, what did he call them—the the not
0: real players or something? Yeah, yeah, fake players. If
1: you don't believe in in the roster that was uh, that you inherited, then you, you trade down. And you try to add more talent to your roster. So it's just I just think that the the, the flexibility that was left behind is incredible, and we've never seen anything like that uh, in, in the NFL. And uh, I, I would probably go the safe route at quarterback and then try to trade down. I'd be willing to take one of these premier talents though. Bradley Chubb sounds like he's the real deal. I, I just started my college prospect research and I've been looking at RBs. Running backs, you know, to to start. I haven't even seen Bradley Chubb, but he sounds like the real deal. Minka Fitzpatrick sounds like the real deal. I mean, if you could sign Kirk Cousins and not even trade down and take, I guess you would take Bradley Chubb at number one. I don't see. Here's the thing: like, you can't justify with what you'd be getting offered. You can't even justify taking Bradley Chubb, even for as good as he may be. Because you'd be getting offered a ton for 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 another team's right to draft Sam Darnold.
0: Yeah, no, and and I, that's the thing too. That again, I know people hate trade downs, but I think there's enough. What the the Broncos are at five, and the Jets are at six. Is that right? That there's enough quarterback needy teams who are still in the top ten. Oh yeah. That that you know, say you did say you did sign Cousins, right? If you traded from 1 to 5 or 1 to 6, you're probably gonna have the guy. If you weren't if you signed cousins and said we're not taking a quarterback at 1 or 4, there's a decent chance that the guy you would have taken at 1 is gonna be there at 5 or 6 anyway. Exactly. Because that that team trading up is taking a quarterback at 1, the Giants are probably taking a quarterback at 2, and then somebody else might jump up and take a quarterback at 3 and all of a sudden you know, you can get Fitzpatrick at four and Barkley at six. Or you can get, Fitz, yep. you know, Barkley at four and Chubb at six. So, And in the meantime, add another a, a, a first-round pick next year. And so I know, I know, I know that people hate trade downs. But you can't just hate the word trade down. If you said the Broncos will will give us their first-round pick next year to move up from five to one and we're going to solve our quarterback issue somewhere else, you have to do that. That makes a ton of sense. So, you know, my my issue is do you come out of this offseason knowing that your quarterback position is set? But from what you see, have seen of Kirk Cousins, you're telling me that if they did that, and I know Joe Thomas wants to do it, if they did that, you believe the Browns would be in that position where they could say, Kirk Cousins is our guy for the next several years, and we can win with him. That's the Kirk Cousins that you've seen in Washington.
1: Uh, I mean, I, I love Kirk Cousins. Okay. And, and I mean, I remember watching him play at Michigan State, and I, I thought he just had it, you know. And his first couple years in the NFL, he was very, he wasn't a good, great decision maker. Uh, But then he was coached up by, you know, Kyle and Mike Shanahan and Jay Gruden. I mean, these are some of the best offensive minds in the NFL. And he has gotten better every year, even this past year. He lost so many guys. Terrell Pryor was a flop. They lost uh, Chris Thompson, a difference-making pass-catching back uh, in early November. Uh, Jordan Reed played the fewest games of his. He played two games. Jordan Reed, you know, was a top-five receiving tight end. Uh, Jamison Crowder dealt with a hip, hip and hamstring injuries all year, and Kirk Cousins was almost as efficient as he has been throughout his entire career. That that line of thinking that oh we we hate trade downs, you know that doesn't span fan bases. I know that maybe the Browns fans are uh, are like on that right now just because of what has happened over the last couple of years, and they don't feel satisfied, but many fan bases want their teams to trade down and try to get more talent because that's the best way
0: to get more talent. Right. Uh, and, you know, the, the the thinking
1: of, oh, well, we feel like it hasn't worked for us the past couple years, so we, we need to stop doing that. That's the same sort of thinking of the play caller as the play caller on third down, oh, you know, our our run plays haven't worked, haven't worked. We're not really concerned about like, uh, forward thinking probability. We just want to get out of this possession, not looking like an idiot. So we're going to call this play, you know, even though it may be suboptimal, uh, that, that's not how you want to make decisions. I I don't think that anyone wants to make decisions in their life like that, uh, because you, you end up making bad decisions and this is all just about making decisions.
0: Evan Silva brings it all back around in the end. That was a great discussion, Evan. Again, he's the senior football editor for Roto World. Um, thank you so much for taking time out of your day. Uh, we, we did it here late at night after both of uh, we both put our kids to bed. Um, but uh, I really appreciate it, Evan. I had a lot of fun talking with you, and uh, hopefully we can catch up again down the line sometime. Likewise,
1: man. Thanks so much for having me on. You're one of my favorite sports columnists in on the planet. And uh, I look
0: forward to reading uh, your stuff going forward. Thanks so much, Evan. And that's it for this Takes by the Lake. Thanks to Evan Silva from Roto World. Again, follow him on Twitter at Evan Silva, E-V-A-N-S-I-L-V-A. Follow me on Twitter, Doug LeMaurice at D-O-U-G-L-E-S-M-E-R-I-S-E-S listen to all of our podcasts here at cleveland.com read our stories on the browns the indians the Cavs, ohio state everyone else at cleveland.com uh, and thanks to you guys as always for hanging around and making takes by the lake part of your day so for evan silva i'm doug lane maurice that was takes by the lake and we'll talk to you next time